Uh, let's go Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk chapter 3. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a moment. If you're watching us online, uh, maybe from home or wherever you happen to be, uh, we'll put the text for the morning up on your screen in uh, just a moment when we get there. Uh, if Whether you're watching us online or you're here in the room, though, uh, if you don't have a Bible of your own, uh, we're pretty passionate about uh, Bible reading around here. We think that God uses it for all kinds of important things. Chief among those important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. We believe that God uses that in a big way. Uh, and so if you don't have a Bible of your very own, not only are there a thousand apps you can find that'll, you know, download it for free or you can Google stuff, and, uh, but we'd love to give you a physical Bible. We believe that God will use that in a big way and believe he'll use it in a special way. Um, and so uh, if you don't have one, uh, let me know uh, whether here in person or in the comment section. I'd love to give you a little paperback Bible and I encourage you to start reading it to point you to some good places and all those kinds of things. And we trust that God's going to do big things with that. Um, so we are on the back end now of a series that we've been working on all summer long, uh, taking a slow walk through the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk was one of the minor prophets. Uh, we call him one of the minor prophets because he wrote less than what we call or consider the major prophets, guys like Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Uh, those are the longer books of the Old Testament. Uh, but uh, guys like Habakkuk wrote considerably less. It's only three chapters. You can sit down and read it in just a few minutes. Our trajectory is just a little bit slower. We're taking a whole summer for it, uh, but it doesn't take long to, to read Habakkuk. Habakkuk, though, was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah, and he, he served or, or was a prophet, we could say, uh, during a very specific time period that we believe. Uh, the, it's not 100% nailed down. We're not 1,000% sure when Habakkuk lived and worked and all those things, but our best educated guess is that his lifespan was to see the last great revival in the nation of Judah under the reign of King Josiah. And he saw all that, celebrated all that, got to enjoy all that, only to watch it all fall apart again and shatter into a million pieces, right? And so uh, we've been saying all summer long that Habakkuk's story is to finally get what he's been begging God for, only to watch it all fall apart and there's nothing he can do to put it back together again. Judah ends up being worse than when she started, far more sinful than when she started, all right? And so uh, Habakkuk is writing this little letter, and it's an incredibly special letter, but it's this little letter uh, in the short window between this absolute fall from greatness and the ultimate destruction of Jerusalem in 587 BC at the hands of the Babylonians. That's the, that's the time period. It's just a, just a sh short few number of years in between Josiah dying and his sons and grandsons running the place into the ground and God raising up the Babylonian Empire to come wipe them out. That's Judah's, or that's Habakkuk's context. He watched the nation of people that he loved that he wanted to see flourish, that he begged God to do something big, finally ascend that hill. And he watched it all fall apart. And the question we've been asking all summer long is this, if you were in Judah's shoes, what would your prayer life look like in that moment? What are you, what are you asking God for? What are you crying out to him about? He, I mean, he had begged God for this, and God seems like he gave it, and then it's taken away. What would your prayer life be like? In chapter 1 of Habakkuk, Habakkuk cries out to God in lament. He says, where are you? That's a question you've probably had before, right? I mean, if we're honest, we can admit to that. 
I think everybody's had that question. Where are you right now? Why would you allow this right now? Why would you allow the people who bear your name, who are supposed to represent you to the nations, why would you allow them to act like this? What are you doing, God? I think every one of us has had a moment exactly like that. Even if you don't call yourself a Christian, I think we've all had moments like that where we throw up our hands at the heavens and we try to figure out why this is happening this way. Or am I alone in that? Not a bit. Mad at the world. Mad at God, whether you know him or not. Just mad. I've got more of those stories than I'd like to share in public. Not my proudest moments, but I got them, right? A lot of people would hear that and I think think that we've strayed into some kind of sacrilegious space. Yeah, he can't be mad at God. That's not allowed. He can't do that. He'll hear you. <laughs> Don't you? He's over there. <laughs> Except for the fact that that's a story that you see play out over and over and over and over and over again in the Bible. Guys that God loves, celebrates even, cherishes, they're constantly yelling at him. Now, to be explicitly clear, God's not required to answer your rebuke. He, he doesn't owe you an answer. He doesn't owe any of those guys an answer. He certainly doesn't owe me an answer. I know my heart. He doesn't owe an answer, but he's also a big boy. He doesn't run into the corner and get scared because somebody got angry at him. That doesn't happen for him. For the Christian, though, that moment of lament, that moment of crying out, I think it's actually a glorious thing. For, for all the, the hang-ups that are there, and we, and we can talk at another time about, about the insufficiencies of that moment and the shortfalls of that moment. We talked about some of that uh, during, during week two of, of our Habakkuk series. But, but for all of the insufficiencies, I think that's a, a glorious moment because it's in that moment where we reveal where our trust actually is, right? See, the thing that we cry out to, the thing that we call on when the world is falling apart, it actually reveals what it is in our heart that we think our Savior is. And so Habakkuk, man, for all the frustration, for all the pain, for all the heartache, he calls out to his God. Not some other thing that he's hoping will solve his problems. No, he calls out to God. He laments. And as amazing as that is, what's even more amazing is that God gives them an answer. You want to start counting up all the people who've gotten a verbal answer from God for their pain this morning? It's a very short list. But Habakkuk gets that, and, and, and it's preserved for us to learn from and, and grow from and, and all these things. And, and, and so he tells Habakkuk, I see what's going on, Habakkuk. I, I know exactly what's going on. And, and yeah, yeah, I'm allowing this to happen right now. I see what's going on, and I'm already working to do something about it. In fact, I've been working for generations now. Before you were even born, Habakkuk, I've been raising up the, an empire over here. You know the Babylonians, the, the guys across your eastern border? You, you might even call them bitter and hasty. You know those guys? I've been raising them up. That's my work, and I'm going to use them to bring my judgment on you. Have a good Sunday. <laughs> I'm going to use that bitter and hasty people to show Judah what I think about their sin. 
God promises coming judgment. And Habakkuk struggles with that revelation. Maybe you do too, right? It, it, it infuriates him even. It seems unfair to him. And so, sure, Judah's got some problems, but, but when you compare them to their neighbors, they're looking kind of rosy, right? Like, like I, know, I know we got some issues over here, but have you seen these guys? They're, they're the epitome of jerks, right? They, they actually are evil. Right? Compared to nations like Babylon, Judah's coming off looking pretty awesome. They're smelling like a rose right now. But on an eternal scale, Judah isn't being compared to its neighbors. It's held up and measured against the infinite holiness of their God. It is weighed by who God is and by who he's declared them, called them to be holy as he is holy. And so even though the idea pricks Habakkuk's sensibilities, the reality is that Habakkuk is a bit player in a cosmic game. He doesn't see all the angles here. And he doesn't sit in as lofty as a position as he kind of naturally assumes that he sits. God, the true judge, has given his judgment. And Judah deserves what's coming. They deserve it in every way. But as we've learned throughout the series, that doesn't mean that Babylon's sin is simply ignored. It's just channeled for a little while for God's purposes and his glory. And so God lets Habakkuk in on what he's got planned for Babylon too. He tells Habakkuk, well, after I'm done using them, here's what I've got planned for them. Since you want to know so bad, here, I'll, I'll, I'll fill you in on what I'm doing on, on a geopolitical level, Habakkuk. You, could, you just go ahead and, and deal with your little corner of Judah right now, but I'll let, you, I'll let you in on what I've got planned for the nations. He's going to bring judgment on Babylon too, except in Babylon's case, they don't have the covenant faithfulness of God on the backside of that. See, God's posture and his actions toward Judah flow out of his steadfast love for them. But he's about to make a giant example out of Babylon. He's about to show the world what he does with a sin debt that he has not graciously covered. He's going to show up and show off. It's going to take everything that Babylon thinks that makes them powerful, thinks, make, thinks that makes them good and right and amazing in the eyes of the world. He's going to take every one of those things and he's going to turn them on their head and he's going to use them for their downfall. He's going to use them to reveal his glory instead of Babylon's. Their military prowess, their idols, he's going to turn them over, turn them inside out and say, look at me. Shame on you, Babylon. And so at the end of chapter 2, God declares to, about himself, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And that's where we left off last week. In this, in this back and forth dialogue between Habakkuk and God, God has answered Habakkuk's rebuke and he's vindicated himself, right? He's, he's shown himself righteous, even though Habakkuk has struggled with that in the, for a moment. God makes it clear, no, 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 I'm on top of this, all right? No, I, I am holy, I am righteous, I am God above and alone, all right? So God has vindicated himself and now it's Habakkuk's turn to talk. So what are you gonna go from there? Right? 
God says, I'm seated on my throne. The whole earth, all of creation keeps silence when I'm here. Your turn, Habakkuk. Where do you go? If you're in Habakkuk's shoes, what comes out of your mouth next? God has given this grand revelation of who he is over and above all the false gods of Judah and their neighbors. He is high and he is lifted up. He is both infinitely transcendent and through his grace, intimately known. If you're Habakkuk, what do you say? I think there's actually a very clear and necessary response in that moment. It's a singular response that I think has multiple angles of attack, at least three, uh, but we can probably flesh out some more. And Habakkuk hits all three. A very specific and necessary response to this giant revelation of who God is. And so what I want to do is spend the next three weeks kind of parsing out the three angles of attack on this one specific response. So back in the very first week uh, of the series, we talked about a right response to darkness, right? This act of lament that calls out to our functional Savior, who hopefully is our actual Savior. All right? That's the right response to darkness, lament. But I believe there's also a right response to light. There's a right response to God revealing himself. When God makes himself known, it necessarily affects some things. And so, you ready to look at that response? Habakkuk chapter 3, starting in verse 1. We're only going to look at a couple verses this morning. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to the Shagayanoth. All right, let's call a time out there. Um, so, fun words. All right? But first of all, you see the word a prayer. But this prayer, it sounds an awful lot like a psalm. Have you noticed this yet? Even just in the first couple of words, it, the structure here is very psalm-like. It's a prayer, but it's a very songy kind of prayer. You ever had a prayer like that? I'm too white for this. All right, anyways, Habakkuk calls it a prayer, but it's a very songy prayer. Not only is it structured like a psalm, but uh, Habakkuk's going to drop some selahs in there. Those of you who are familiar with the psalms, uh, whether, uh, whether you have a church background or not, if you've read a psalm, you come across a selah, right? And he's going to drop some selahs in there. Um... At the end of this psalm, he's going to, to, to tell the choir master to play it with stringed instruments. So it's, it's, it's a prayer, but it's also a song, right? It's meant to be sung. And on top of that, you got the, that weird word at the end of the sentence that, let's be honest, if I ask any one of you to stand up here on, on camera and read it publicly, you get a little sweaty. <laughs> what in the world is a Shagayanoth. <laughs> you might want to take a stab at it? No? Okay, just checking. All right. The answer is that we don't know. We, we actually don't know what that word means, um, at least not for certain. So the word occurs exactly twice in the Bible, here and then another place, in Psalm 7. All right, in Psalm 7. And so uh, we think that it's used in Psalm 7 as a musical term. All right? Uh, and you we talked about Selah a second ago, right? Our, our theory about Selah, again, we don't know what the word actually means, but our working theory is, is that it's some kind of musical notation that probably means rest. And the reason why we think that it means rest is because it's always dropped in these stop and think about it kind of moments in the Psalms, right? Something grand is said, and now it's time to just kind of rest in that and chew on it for a second before you move any further, 
right? That's what, what we think Selah means because of how it's used in, in the Bible, right? And so the prevailing theory is that Shagayanoth indicates what style of song uh, is to be played or what style of the song it should be played in. Like, uh, but, but what style that is, we don't know. No idea. Maybe it's up-tempo. Maybe it's set in a minor key. Whatever that is. What we do know, though, the, the thing that we have to build a theory on is that in Psalm 7, the Hebrew there is singular. Shagayon. Here in Habakkuk, it's plural. And so some commentators have this working theory is that the word could mean duet. Again, just speculation, but let's be honest, it's a really cool sounding theory, right? A duet. And so if, if, and that's a giant if, if Shagayanoth means in the style of a duet, who would that duet be with? It's between Habakkuk and God. Habakkuk and God have had this little back and forth dance all letter long, right? Habakkuk calls out, God gives his answer. Habakkuk cries out. He reveals his anger. He reveals his frustration, and God responds with graciousness and strength and holiness. God, where are you? I'm here. God, why are you doing this? Because of who I am. God, why won't you? Oh, I'm already Back and forth and back and forth. God has gently pulled Habakkuk along the entire way. And I, man, I think Habakkuk is beginning to finally come around. I think he's finally getting there. God reveals himself at the, at the end of chapter 2. And, and Habakkuk is moved to response. And what is that response? He sings. He sings. He, he writes a worship song with instructions on how to sing it corporately as a group. But that response is not some weird anomaly. It, it's not something that uh, Habakkuk is this artsy type, and so, so he's got this avenue for that that nobody else has. No, I think this is what ought to happen. Ought to happen. Singing praise is a natural and appropriate response to the revelation of God, always, forever. It's something that's going to happen for eternity. Singing. Now to be clear, praise is absolutely bigger than a song. But it's not less than that. It's never less than that. And so while everyone has different skill levels and temperaments when it comes to, to, to music, the Bible is incredibly clear. It expects God's people to be a singing people. It assumes that's what God's people are going to do and do as often as possible. And so some may have to discipline themselves to get there, absolutely, but our hearts were created for it. It's a defining characteristic of who we are. And I would make the argument, the further argument, that a failure to pursue it, whether, whether good, bad, or ugly, doesn't matter. A failure to pursue it in God's economy is actually disobedience. Disobedience. God expects us to sing, both individually and corporately. He expects it. This is why singing is a core component of what we, what we do when, when we gather together as a church, right? God is glorified when a room full of his people are gathered and singing in his name. 
performing music, that, that's a tool that has a place, but, but singing is what we've actually been called to. That's why, that's why we, 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 whenever we plan what's going on on the stage, we spend more time with congregational singing than we ever will with somebody performing. It's because one is actually called for and the other is just something that can be helpful every once in a while. We're a singing people. But, but we don't just sing anything. It's not that everything goes. What we sing matters immensely. JB is very careful here to, to pick songs that fuel correct worship rather than making much of ourselves. I don't know if you've noticed that and appreciated that, but we need to notice that and appreciate that. We, we want to sing things about God that are true. Just like with the idolatry conversation we had last week, fervency of worship is irrelevant when you're singing to an imaginary God of your own creation. It's irrelevant. You can dress it up all you want to. You pick whatever style you might enjoy. Maybe it's even a style that all your friends think is really, really impressive. You can dress it up as much as you want to, but it doesn't matter. You'll never be able to make an imaginary God hear your prayer. You'll never be able to make an imaginary Savior accept your gracious worship. We must sing things about God that are true, that always have been true, that always will be true. And the temptation, at least I think the temptation for some, is to see that as some kind of pharisaic restriction. Problem is, it's not. It's not the case at all. For one, because the real God is infinitely sweeter than anything our heads can come up with. He's better. But two, because the God of truth is also the God of infinite creativity. Infinite creativity. So, and so while truth acts as guardrails, we could say, uh, the creative expression of that truth <laughs> inside of those guardrails, we have a, we have a freedom to, to wander wherever spirit-filled people want to wander. We can take it wherever is appropriate inside of truth. Truth is a, a safety fence around a giant yard that's free to play in, free to explore. But I think we can also go another layer down into this, or at least Habakkuk does. So look at where Habakkuk begins his song of praise in verse 2. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. Let's call a time out there. Hey, can we call a spade a spade this morning? That is not where most people begin their worship. Am I wrong? The fear of the Lord? In fact, I, I know a whole bunch of people, I even call some of them friends, who would never choose to bring up the fear of the Lord in an, a moment of worship. In fact, any kind of moment of singing, they, they would try to argue that, that fear of the Lord and singing praise, they don't belong together. And... And in some senses, don't we, all kinda, don't we all kinda think the same thing? We wanna celebrate in this moment. Why would we be scared of anything? I don't really blame them, to, to be honest. We, I think every one of us, myself included, we, we love calling attention and celebrating the nearness of God and the knowability of God and the grace of God, but every one of us, myself included, we all struggle to celebrate the transcendence of God. I'm guilty of that. The white-hot holiness of God. Why do we all struggle with that? Because it's scary. If we're thinking of it correctly, it ought to terrify us. It's just the truth. It's scary. 
Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter how awesome you look, standing next to your neighbor, encountering God's holiness immediately reveals just how unholy you and I are. It reveals the problem that we don't like to talk about at parties. Those of you who know your Bible, well, think Isaiah 6 for a moment, right? Isaiah is more righteous than anybody else he knows. Isaiah is looking like a golden boy in the midst of everybody else in his nation. But then God gives him a vision of himself. He, he reveals himself seated high and, and on his throne. He got the seraphim shouting, holy, 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 back and forth. And if you know the picture, what does Isaiah do in that moment? He hits the deck. He cries out, woe is me. How sorrowful, how pitiful am I. Isaiah immediately understands the depth and the heinousness of his sin the moment he gets a clear picture of who God is. He is undone. It doesn't matter that Isaiah looks better than everybody else that he can think of. Isaiah is nothing when he stands before a holy God. Isaiah is undone. Habakkuk here is given a similar picture of God's holiness, right? He's seated on his throne. Sounds like familiar language. And the correct response, the appropriate response is fear. It's fear. Even in the middle of a worship song, fear. And I know, I know that there's going to be some who get hung up on that word. I really do. And in fact, I, I, for a long time, I did. No one wants to celebrate the fear of the Lord. I mean, I think a lot of ink has been spilled over the years trying to reframe that word into something that's more palatable, something that's more sensible to, to modern ears and sensibilities. And I, I, I'll concede that there's, there are probably a lot of people who definitely carry an unhealthy definition of fear into that equation. I think that's all over the place. You can do that with any theological concept. I think there are a lot of people who carry unhealthy definitions of fear into their understanding of this moment. At the same time, though, I'm not really convinced that fear is the thing that needs a better explanation. See, the question is not, how do we make our understanding of fear more palatable? The question ought to be, what do we misunderstand about God's holiness that causes us to stumble over that word being used? What is it about God's holiness, his transcendence, his righteousness, his otherness that goes, that's not a good enough word? What is it about our understanding of who God is that's currently too small for that to seem like exactly the word that needs to be used? Don't mishear me. I, God is neither malicious nor capricious, but, but the default sins of our culture is not to oversell other people's value. It's to oversell our own. I don't know if you've ever paid attention to that. That's not what we struggle with. We struggle with, with pumping up ourselves rather than, than others. And so maybe, just maybe spitball in here, maybe we struggle with the fear of the Lord thing because we easily lose sight of the fact that He's on an infinitely different level than you and me. It's the idolatry thing all over again, right? Habakkuk here, he hears the report 
of God. He hears the report of the Lord, and he's beginning to get the picture. It wasn't, it wasn't long ago, if you remember the letter, it wasn't long ago that Habakkuk was taking his stand on the watch post, right? He, he stamped his foot, and he demanded a better answer, right? He wanted a satisfactory answer, but now, now he's been instructed about who is actually seated upon the throne, and he knows better. He knows better. He's responding the way I think one ought to respond to that kind of revelation with awe, with reverence, with the same kind of woe is me that Isaiah experienced. He responds with a deep worship, nuanced by an appropriate fear that understands who God is and who he is and how he relates to him. When you sing, is that nuance there? When I sing, is that nuance there? Is there a healthy fear of the Lord buried at the very core of your response of praise? Now, fear isn't the only necessary layer to that. There, there most assuredly is other layers, and we're going to talk about some of those layers in, a, in the next couple of weeks to come. We, we really are, but man, I think, I think Habakkuk is right to begin here. Why? Because, because at the end of the day, it's the fear of the Lord that fuels those other layers, at least sustainably. See, the only way that those other pieces have any real shot of lasting beyond something you can produce is if they're fueled by something otherworldly. If they're produced by a correct understanding of who God is and how we relate to him, you can muster up excitement for a while. You can muster up a, a, a thankfulness for a while, but when you rightly understand who he is and what he has done, who you are and how you relate to him, it'll fuel all those other things and you won't have to bother with that. It'll do it for you. Is there a healthy fear of the Lord buried at the very core of your response of praise? And I think a very fair question is, if not, why not? Why not? I'll confess in my own heart, when I, when I find myself in that place, it's, it's usually because I've, I've slipped into a relaxed understanding of who he is. Because of, whether it's because of sin in my life or just mere laziness, I've, I've lost sight in that moment of his otherness. I've elevated myself and, 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 and lowered him in such a way that, that we're operating on same levels as if we're just buddies naturally. Instead of it being the indescribable and wholly undeserved grace and mercy and goodness of his character that brought me in the room. But we've been seeing all throughout this letter that God has been graciously pulling Habakkuk along, and this moment is no different. In fact, I think, I think it's an act of love towards Habakkuk that God would let him see some of his holiness right here. That God would wake him up to what's really going on. Oh, God, give us the same experience. Is, is that something you want? Because I, I really want that. 
that we'd get just a glimpse of him seated on his throne and it would forever change the way we worship here. Forever. Even through pain. If deep and true worship is really what's on the other side of that pain, then I'll take it. I'm in. But this worship doesn't stop with Habakkuk. Look at the next part. Verse 2. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and of your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk asked God for for two things. One, to to spread the knowledge of who he is and, and what he has done, to expand his glory, right? And two, to repeat his merciful past towards those who don't see it yet and understand it yet. To repeat himself. Oh God, would you repeat the stories that we've heard from long ago of of how faithful you are and how merciful you are, of how great and mighty you are to save. Show yourself good. Show yourself strong. Show yourself as Savior. Oh God, be merciful now as you have been merciful in all our days before. Repeat yourself. Let the glory and the fear of the Lord spread through this land. Habakkuk began this letter crying out to God, begging him to to step in and act. And he's going to end this letter in the exact same way. God, would you do something here? Oh God, would would you work? Oh God, would you act? Oh God, would you step in? But what began with heartache and frustration, what began with lament, it now, through the gracious work of God, has morphed into an involuntary explosion of praise. Habakkuk can't help himself. Oh, church family, we need to see, I I think we desperately need to see this morning that, that the answer to our biggest problems in this world is not that God would take the problems away, but that in the midst of those problems, he would give us more of himself. In the midst of those problems, he would give it Give us more of himself. Write it down, Habakkuk. Make it plain. Judgment is coming, but here I am. Know me. And when you truly know me, you can't help but be changed by me. What a duet. Habakkuk calls. God gives his gracious answer. I'm excited to dig more into the duet over the next couple of weeks. It's going to be a lot of fun. But how do we respond this morning, right? We're going to flesh out this psalm more. There are definitely other layers to this appropriate response of worship. I want to make that absolutely clear, but is there a response from us today? Is there a response from us this morning? Follow Jesus, your response is the same as it is every single week. We repent of sin and we press into God, right? Whenever we encounter God's word, that's what we do. We repent of sin and we lean into the goodness of God. Is there a healthy fear of the Lord buried at the very core of your praise? If not, what what needs to shift? What needs to be disciplined? What needs to, to be worked on in such a way to cultivate that nuance? What needs to be adjusted 
so that that has room to grow in you. Because the more you work to cultivate that, the bigger he proves himself to be. I don't know about you, but it sounds like a good idea. And the bigger he proves himself to be, the deeper and truer you worship. And I don't know about you, but that sounds even better. I want as much of that as I can get. Maybe you do too. In a second, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That's, a, that's an opportunity for you to respond, whether you're here in the room or you're watching us online this morning. That's an opportunity. That moment is built out specifically so you can respond to his word. But, but what about those who don't know Jesus yet? Can you respond to God's word today? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, you can. Whether you're in this room or you're engaging with us online, you can respond to God's word in this moment by meeting Jesus. See, the Bible teaches that we are all by default separated from God because of our sin. Our sin deserves his wrath. And he is just and he is right and he is good and he will in no way let the guilty go unpunished. The Bible promises that. So how in the world do you go from Undeserved, from deserving wrath, the wrath of God, because of God's holiness, to celebrating that holiness like Habakkuk does. The same holiness that, that, ought, to, that ought to rightfully strike fear in you, how does that turn into something that can be celebrated and even through fear enjoyed? The answer is that you repent of your sin and you trust Jesus alone for salvation. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, He put on flesh and He dwelt among us. He lived the sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. He died on the cross as a sinless, innocent substitute to pay the sin debt that you and I owe. And He was raised again from the dead as a vindication of His perfect and sufficient righteousness. And so now, as the King who conquered sin and death, as the king who willingly and joyfully went to the cross to purchase you, to make you his, he calls on you in this moment to turn away from your sin and to trust him in his sufficient holiness. Like Isaiah, when you stand before this God, it's not going to go well. Who cares if you can find people that are worse than you? You're not being compared to your neighbor. Who cares if you can puff up your chest about some things that nobody else around you is doing? You'll, you'll be undone. But through the gracious work of Jesus, he gives you himself. He takes away your sin and he gives you his righteousness. And you can call on him to do that right now. It's, this, is a, this is a time of response, but there's nothing magical about it. Romans 10 tells us that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So call on him this morning. You don't need me. You don't need some priest. You can do that right where you are. Even if you're watching us online, you're not in the room right now. He's there. Call on him this morning. But I'd love to be helpful to you. 
Just because you don't need me doesn't mean we can't talk. I'd love to help you navigate what this response of faith looks like. And so if that's you, let me know after we're done. I'll be standing down here at the front for anybody who's in the room. If you're uh, watching us online, write in the comments, use the contact form, whatever it is, get a hold of me. I, man, I'd love to walk with you through this response of faith. I'd help you, love to help you navigate what that looks like. But whoever you are, however God is calling you to respond this morning, Let's all respond together as a church family right now. Father, you're good to us way more than we deserve. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for Habakkuk 3. Thank you for giving us a glimpse of your holiness this morning. Oh, would you give us more? I know that we can't handle all of it. We burn up in your presence. Oh, but like Moses, just give us a taste. Just give us a, just a little bit. I'm convinced that it'll forever affect us in the best way possible. Remind us of your bigness. Remind us of your grandeur. Remind us of your magnificence. Remind us of your infinite holiness. And change your people by it. Would you fuel our worship even in this moment, but in the weeks and years ahead? Forever change us. God, for those who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known even in this moment? Would you open eyes to see? Would you open ears to hear and hearts to know? Would you make yourself known to people? Would you invite people into your kingdom this morning? Call us to yourself. God, in all these things, you are the one who deserves praise. You are the one who deserves worship. And you are the one who will receive the glory forever and ever. Amen. Help us give it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.